Hello and welcome. You're about to listen to a conversation with Kari Sulnez. Kari is a co-founder of Project Atlas. Project Atlas is a pretty interesting organization. It's a subsidiary or a branch of a VC fund called Alpha Bridges. And basically, I think the people that started Alpha Bridges, which supports new businesses and being funded, decided that they did not want all of their founders to burn out in the process of creating their business. So they created a founder support network to support them in the process of kind of engaging in the often hard work of starting and running a business from scratch. So Kari runs that division. And I think because of that, Kari's kind of an expert on burnout. And I think we could all use some advice on burnout and help with managing the complexity of modern living and all the demands that are put on us. Because I think in a way, we're all CEOs and founders of our own life. And there's so much demand and pressure to be successful almost at all costs. So we kind of look at what does it mean to burn out? What are the stages and what you can do to avoid total burnout and embrace the small burnouts that help us become resilient, learn new skills and grow as people. Kari brings in yogic philosophy. Her practice and history as a psychotherapist with a PsyD and just her deep heart that is interested in growth, transformation and healing. Yeah, so please enjoy. And just like as a note throughout this, I use VC a lot. I'm actually meaning founders. I think I was just caught in a brain loop. But yeah, so when you hear me say VC, think I'm usually meaning founders. All right, thank you. Be well. Hi, Carrie. Hi. <laughs> you're the second, you're Kari though. You're like Kari, right? Yeah, both are correct. I, I, I feel like Kari's better, if that's all okay. right. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, let's just like take a little moment of silence. Take as long as you want. And um, once you're settled, then I'm settled. Uh, we can start the conversation. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks for the silence. Yeah, yeah. I, I always wonder how much I can put on when I put the recording out, like how much silence people can tolerate. <laughs> you could just keep pushing the envelope more and more silence as your listeners become deeper and deeper in their uh, their silence practice. I always feel like it's like what context someone is in. If I'm like driving a car versus walking, like how much silence I might tolerate. Um, but I don't know. There's also a feeling of listening to silence. I, I've noticed this, right? Uh, I don't often do guided meditations, but if there's in silence in the middle of something that you're actually listening to, mm -hmm. it's, it's a pretty interesting experience for me and different than being like in a room with people. It's like you're listening to silence by yourself. Yeah, yeah. One right. of my favorite meditations, sometimes they're called glimpse meditations. Mm -hmm. Like they're quick meditations, not this sort of like, endurance meditation we do a lot in our culture um is you ring a bell like one of those tibetan bells mm -hmm. and then you listen to the place where the sound was mm. which i i always kind of really love that's beautiful i think that i would probably start answering my email in the middle of that 
Yeah. Which brings us to our topic of like <laughs> burnout and living our best lives and how to manage the culture we're in. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'd love if you could share a little of your story of, because when I met you, we were both uh, training to be therapists, but for you, a PsyD and me, a uh, master's in counseling. So we have kind of a different background, but we did the same training um, in Gestalt therapy. Mm -hmm. And then like, I didn't hear from you for a few years. And then you were like a CEO of a company. <laughs> and I was like, how did that turn happen? <laughs> Which I find amazing and awesome. But I want, could you just share like the journey from like individual therapy, maybe doing some group therapy here and there to like running a company? Yeah, um, I was probably as surprised as you were. <laughs> so I imagine. None of this was by design. Um, I, I did not sort of like set my sights on this thing and then run after it. Which is, I love that though. And I, I want that to be a part of this. Like you didn't run after this. Like mm -hmm. it came to you and that feels like such an important um, thing to like honor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so where do I start? Oh, I also want to say I never have called myself a CEO, which maybe we can dig into at another time. <laughs> That's yeah. like a whole, whole probably story in and of itself. Um, but uh, I would often introduce myself as a person who runs the company or as a person who does a lot of stuff for the company. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe starting with the company that you run and what it does and then kind of how you got there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, start backwards. So <clears throat> we're about to go through a name change. So the company up until this point has been called Atlas and it will be soon to be called Pylea. Um, but this is a company that grew out of something totally accidental that happened to me about four years ago, which is I was just graduating from my PsyD. I just finished my internship <clears throat> in Kentucky. And I've been doing individual therapy. Wait, you went to Kentucky? I didn't even know that. Yeah. You spent time, that's so cool. What's Kentucky like? Um, I'm actually headed there on Friday and I, let me tell it, let me tell it from the beginning to end really fast. Yeah, please. I, just, I think sorry that, for my tangent there. I just like, I don't even hear the word Kentucky come up in a sentence very often. <laughs> so, so we go through, in Sidey, we go through something kind of like they do for med school where you get matched with a place to do the final year of your training. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get to choose, right? Like I applied to a bunch of places and then uh, you, you rank them and then you get matched. And so I got matched to go to Kentucky. I've lived in, my, in the Northwest my entire life. I grew up in Olympia. I, when I went to the Eastern side of Washington, I felt like everyone was way too conservative and I stuck out like a sore thumb. <laughs> like 200 miles away from the like temperate rainforest of the Northwest. I showed up the first day of, of university wearing these tie-dye pants that I'd made. And I was like looking for all the people smoking weed under the trees. Yeah, where's like, your hacky sack kind of slackline friends? Yeah, and everyone's like wearing polo shirts and playing Frisbee. And I was like, what is this place? Uh, and like um, not even ultimate Frisbee, like just Frisbee. Just, just like drinking beers and throwing Frisbees. <laughs> <laughs> at least at least in Washington, they like throw a Frisbee and not a football. <laughs> the, the, the college shirt guys. Yeah. <laughs> But I found myself like totally out of water anyway. So when I was matched to move to Kentucky, I thought there is no way I can live in the South. Mm -hmm. Like there isn't like no part of me that is Southern. Like I, 
I can't even start to figure out how this is going to work. I'm even scared to visit there a little bit. Like, I don't even know, like, as a tourist, if I feel safe. Like, just the culture, not like people are mean or anything. It just feels so different. They're actually just so nice. I know. Uh, <laughs> too nice? I don't know. But what I'll tell you, Brandon, is that when I was in Kentucky, I was living in Lexington, and I worked at University of Kentucky. I absolutely 100% fell in love. Oh. I love it. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm headed back on Friday to spend a week there. To just get some Kentucky nourishment? Yeah. there's oh, so awesome. Yeah, just outside of the city that I was in, there's uh, the Red River Gorge, which is an absolutely spectacular, it's a climbing mecca, first of all, which a lot of people don't know. Mm. Um, and then it's, it's, it's just a spectacular outdoor space. Yeah, and, the wilderness there really drew you. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and um, fireflies. Oh. <laughs> yeah I, I always wonder what are these things I want to know these things it's like in the summer your whole life feels like it's a movie because there's just like little sparkles everywhere oh you got like the glitter app just naturally or whatever <laughs> the glitter filter anyway loved Kentucky um absolutely loved it and so you, you were finishing up your Kentucky internship and this is where things started to unfold for you yeah so actually in Kentucky I randomly met this guy named Howie Diamond, which is quite a name. Yeah, um, is, that, is that his chosen name or his birth name? <laughs> That's his birth name. Oh, well, it, I want to talk to his parents. That's awesome. <laughs> he has a, you should definitely, I'll, I'll um, send you that direction after this. He has an interesting story. He likes to call himself a former rock star turned VC. Oh yeah. And VC is for people not knowing what that is. So he's a venture capitalist, which means that he raises money from folks and then deploys that capital or, or then gives the money to startups that are trying to uh, build their companies. And like he's supposed to have a better eye for businesses that are going to succeed and people give him money because of that eye. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there's like all of this stuff. This is, this will come up later, right? We're like, okay, this kind of founder, right? The founder of a company, the person who starts it um, has the certain kind of profile and like certain profiles are going to make more successful companies, right? So we, so especially at early stages of companies, uh, venture capitalists, some of them have this idea that's like, I can really read, read people, right? I know exactly what kind of leader this person is going to be and I'm like gonna they're almost listening less to the pitch of the idea and more to the pitcher like the founder the future founder and their qualities and attributes are what matters almost more than the idea sometimes yeah I mean both matter but the you're really investing in the person like there's a lot of startups fail and so what what you're looking for is a person who can persevere through a lot of shit to get to success and like you have to keep trying like over and over and over and over and over again and like basically be failing sometimes for years before there's success yeah that almost makes me rephrase what i just said like a good idea with someone that can persevere enough to make that good idea a reality yeah yeah, yeah. so i'll put a pin in that i will talk about that and so howie you mean howie in kentucky and so i, so I met howie in kentucky and uh we we chatted briefly about my dissertation, which was uh, about burnout and this idea of holistic well-being um, in an organizational setting. So I was really interested in how do we create businesses that actually promote human thriving rather than creating human suffering. Yeah. 
Which is such a beautiful aim, right? That our companies can treat its employees in such a way or build a communal structure that supports flourishing for themselves and then hopefully the environment that they're contributing to also? We really hope so. But so much of my experience and other people's experience is not that. Um, you know, and, and something that I, well, okay, I'm going to take another little backtrack. Oh, I'm, trying, I'm, trying to start, I'm trying to start this in the beginning of like, go where you want, you know? <laughs> So, so I, I got to grad school in the first place because I was working at the YWCA and my job at that time was essentially to support women, mostly women who were leaving domestic violence situations and I was supposed to support them in finding careers, mm -hmm. so helping them get back to work. And I did things like taught computer classes and I helped write resumes and helped with job search. You know, I was doing all these practical things. And like meeting the needs of these women, that, like the support they need to kind of enter the workforce and be independent to leave the violent situation they're embedded in. Exactly, right? Because um, economic empowerment is one mm -hmm. of the factors in being able to live life on your terms. Yeah. And so I was trying to help with that. And what I kept seeing is that even when we were successful in finding a job for a woman to work at, I would often see them back in my office and they would say, I was triggered or re-traumatized at work, or my mm. boss did X, Y, and Z to me, or the team is dysfunctional and toxic in this way. And that work was actually one of the contributors to um, harming them, not healing them. Mm -hmm. And so I became absolutely obsessed with this idea of like how, how we spend almost a third and some of us more than a third of our lives at work. And if a third of our lives are spent at work and work is actually harming us, it's something we have to come home to heal from. Mm -hmm. like that's, that's a huge obstacle to kind of my ultimate goal, which is like all of us are like healthy and free and yeah. able to be who we are. Like what if our works had enough infrastructure, relational infrastructure built into them that they could help us both work through the conflicts at work, but also acknowledge that we bring our own conflicts into work that need support. Because I think that was something you were saying there, right? Like we can get triggered, like activated from something from our past, mm -hmm. or we can also be in shitty work situations. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Right. <laughs> or sometimes they're playing back and forth, mm -hmm. right? And they're, and they're just continuing to re-harm us instead of helping us to heal. Yeah. And so basically what I saw happening for these women is that they traded this abusive relationship with a human being for an abusive relationship with their workplace. Mm -hmm. And the formatting was staying the same and the healing wasn't happening. And this is where this initial uh, seed of what, what would a business be like that supported humans mm -hmm. kind of first started to grow for you. And it, it seems like it guided your research from there. Yeah, so I became just obsessed with it. it, yeah. it became a part of everything I was doing. And I found myself was learning to do individual therapy and sitting with individuals, but I was so interested in the systems that they were in. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I couldn't ever stop my brain from just wondering like, what if you were in a different system? Yeah, like if someone brings up like a shitty day at work and then they transition to something, you're like, wait, tell me more about your work. Like what's the structure of the work? How many employees? Like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. About your kids. Tell me about your workplace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's, what's like parenting? Like, what what roles have you delineated with your partner to make this workflow work of parenting? 
Yeah, so I just became really interested in work structure. Anyway, so all of that is like my background. That that drove me to go to grad school. Mm. And oh wait, that so that early sort of uh, y- YMCA is that what it was? The YWCA. YW. Oh, the M. Yeah, I am sexist. Yeah. The YWCA <laughs> um, was before grad school, yeah. and that was like, oh, okay, cool. I didn't know that about you. That's so interesting to know. That was a sort of propeller. Yeah. To, to guide you. Oh, I'm all excited. Please keep talking. <laughs> I want to hear more because your story is so much cooler now. It was cool before, but like you're this initial kernel that brought you here, like where we're at now. So please take us to where you're at now. All right. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to stay on track and get us to where I am now. So I'll be quiet now. Okay. So I met Howie. I met Howie and I I probably told him some version of that story. And uh, he told me about venture capitalists and which I had known I knew nothing about. I also thought that all investors were evil. So I was operating under that context. I was like, oh, you're one of the evil capitalists that's trying to take us all down. And he was like, yes, I am. And, but he was very proud of it, right? So this was, I was already starting to like have some sort of context shift happen for me. Um, And then I didn't talk to Howie for some time. Um, After grad school, I decided that I was gonna take some time off and not work. I- Appropriately. Yeah, and I wasn't I wasn't sure that therapy was really my thing. Like I really loved sitting with people, but speaking of systems, the the system and the the structure of being a therapist, uh, all of the kind of legal boundaries and the just the confinement of yeah. being well, in a system. Often then embedded within the system of insurance companies and their sort of right. financial legistic structure. Yeah. I found that I really couldn't help people. I was, oh. I was sometimes blocked from doing what I knew needed to be done. Like your intuitive sense of what would be supportive didn't seem like it could flow through the filters of therapy. Yeah. 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 And so I was already starting to question, like, is this what I want to do? Hmm. Um, and so I took some time off and I was driving through San Francisco and I remembered that I had this meeting with this guy, Howie. And so I called him up and we had coffee and he was in the midst of firing someone. He had, um, he and his partner, Jake, uh, Jake Chapman had hired the VC someone. partner or like intimate yeah, partner. VC partner, okay. right? Not like, <laughs> yeah, they're business partners in uh, the fund that I eventually started working with called Alpha Bridge Ventures. Um, so I was having coffee with Howie and he was saying, we have to fire this person. We hired this person to develop our well-being program for the founders we invest in. And I was like, well, that sounds really fascinating. He said, yeah, we're starting a fund that where we're actually investing in the well-being of the founders. So instead of investing only in the companies and then betting on people, which is kind of the typical way that venture capital works, they're going to invest in the people and, and then bet that they're going to make this idea successful, kind of like we were talking about before. Which is kind of revolutionary in the VC world, right? Like, yeah. it seems like more like a, I'm using an analogy here, but like thoroughbred racing, like pick the horse that can finish the race rather than like help the horse to make it through the race. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I'll, I have an analogy for that that we, we can get into later too. So yeah. I was pretty fascinated by all of this, but what Howie was really asking for help with was like, how do I fire this person? <laughs> 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 So, and I, I unfortunately at that point had some experience firing people. So I was, I was ready for the task. Uh, and so he kind of walked me through what happened. And I said, you know, my, my bias always is that a, a parting of ways is actually a learning experience. 
So it should actually feel like a gift, right? It should feel like we're separating, but you're taking with you new knowledge about how you were received in this place and we're not a fit and, and mm-hmm. now you're gone, right? That to me is a really great firing conversation. So I wanted to understand what it is that she had done. And in the process of him explaining to me what she had done, I said, oh, interesting. Like if I were in her position, I might've done it this way. And so, you know, I'm just thinking about like, what's the kind of feedback that you could give this person as you're firing her. And inadvertently I pitched him a proposal (laughs) right in like helping him to fire this person. And he said, I actually think that would be great. Would you help us with that? Mm-hmm. Would you like to take this person's position? Yeah. So you, a micro conversation around supporting how we and firing this person, you sort of found yourself into becoming not the CEO of this emerging wing <laughs> of the VC fund. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. And so what, what basically happened then is that I said, well, I don't know anything. Like, I don't, I don't know anything about, I just learned this thing called VC, like, you know, a couple of months ago, I don't know any founders the word CEO scares the shit out of me. Like, you know, like I don't even know how to start approaching that. So I asked if we could start with a study. Yes. So you wanted to learn the culture that he was wanting to support, like what's actually happening in the founder VC kind of CEO culture where people seem to be burning out at like a high rate to mm-hmm. start these businesses or these different organizations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I interviewed a bunch of founders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would and you would you ask these founders? Like, what was the framing of the research? Like, what were you wanting to get at? And what, what were the questions? What'd you learn? Like, yeah. So I realized this about myself at some point. I don't remember when, but I really, I really like to understand breakdowns. Like, like breakdowns in systems or individuals or relationships or the culture. Yeah, all of it. Like, yeah. I like when things are like, I want to know why they're not working. And I want to know like really deeply why they're not working. So what I asked founders to tell me were any burnout stories they have for themselves. So almost every founder I talked to had some sort of burnout arc or like story, right? That they could tell me. And I asked them to tell me with a beginning, middle and end, um, you know, like what, how did this all start? Like what drove you to go on this path? Like when it got really bad, what made it really bad? And then like, who did you reach out to for support? And like how, how do you make it through this? Yeah, how did you resolve it? And I learned a couple of things that were really interesting. One is that almost every founder had a burnout story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they hadn't had a burnout story or they didn't identify it that way, now looking back on it from where I, where I'm sitting now is they're they're on their way. Yeah, they were they were they were burning out or they had burned out. Right. So it's just it's just kind of like it's it's everywhere. So that's one thing I learned. The second thing is that um, the burnout stories that I heard were much more holistic than I thought that they were going to be. So it wasn't like I woke up one day and I didn't feel like working anymore. It's like I woke up one day and I had headaches. Then the next week I had gastrointestinal distress. Then all of my relationships went to crap. And then I started coming to work and working even more hours to try to compensate for all of that. Mm -hmm. Then my team turned against me. So then I turned into a leader I didn't like. So then I developed like this sort of like self-hating internal dialogue. And then I got to work and I was like, wouldn't it be nice if I just quit this and move to Bali? And I'm I'm always there. (laughs) I'm always at that place. Like, can I just move to a tropical island and hang out? (laughs) 
We'll talk about that later. I think we can help you with that. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I so you way you I my mind just like fired like 80 places when you're talking. I feel like we could just hang out with those four points and there's so much interesting things there. Just around like the, the normalization of burnout, right? Like burnout is something we all go through. But like the piece that like really drew me there was like the doubling down, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, I, my nervous system is getting activated. It's expressing itself through physiological symptoms, headaches, IBS, all these things that are saying like nervous system energy is not being digested and processed, right? right. And then it bleeds out into relationships. And then it's like, why don't I just fucking work harder? <laughs> <laughs> to make yeah. this go away but then it seems like a gnarly feedback loop happens that's just my outside read on what you just shared <laughs> that's exactly it i'm gonna put a cherry on top for you because then the other thing i heard was that their main supporters so the founder said that the person that they go to first when shit's hitting the fan are their investors oh yeah 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 who are saying just work more because that's what we want from you. And like any reason you come to us is like, get the business going. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the evil investor, but like. But there's a conflict, there's a conflict of interest, right? Like mm -hmm. even really great investors, like they invested in you to make more money for the people who invested in them, right? Their like, livelihood, their kids, right. education, their home, right? The, the, yeah, it's all sort of woven in there. So like as a founder, you can't go to your investor and say, I'm going to move to Bali. They're going to say, no, don't <laughs> like, don't move to Bali. I need you to, I need you to build this company. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 Like this is that. a bad idea. Not like, Oh, let's talk about this. Let's explore this sort of maybe outrageous idea for someone that invested four years of their life into building a company. Like, but maybe if we sit with Bali, we can see what you need here. <laughs> like, what do you, what would Bali give you that's missing right now? <laughs> it would be great if all investors knew how to ask those questions. <laughs> This is the next company, right? Training investors and how to support their... Well, we actually are doing that now, which I'll tell you about because we ran into the same thing. We said, okay, let me let me keep going with the story because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you're doing research. You find these kind of four points, this sort of arc of burnout. Mm -hmm. And then right now you're finding they're circling back to their investors. That's usually who they're going to for support. Right. So then I had this little like kind of ding, ding, ding thing go off in my head. Like one is... Like investors have to be involved in this process. Oh yeah, the, the investors can't be like, "Hey, Kari, we're gonna give you some a little startup to stun this company. Take care of our people for us, so we don't have to worry about them." <laughs> right. Like the investors are actually a part of the story, mm -hmm. right? Like they're an important part of the story, and they're important for at least two reasons. Like the first reason is that investors are kind of like the power figures in this whole story. Yeah, they have right? a parental role almost, sort of embedded in yeah. them. That's yeah. a really nice way to put it. So they're in a position to give permission. Yeah, yeah. And so like, that's like, I sometimes founders need an investor to say, it's okay for you to spend money on your well-being. Mm -hmm. And they just, they need that. And then the second thing is that founders, especially early on in the company building process are broke. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're flat broke. They don't have any money. Like they got a bunch of money infused into a company and they're like not paying themselves until that company has some money coming in almost. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So like they have lots of resources around them, but like somehow personally they're poor. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it, it's kind of this interesting thing. Like we came from community mental health where like there, it, there aren't a lot of resources. You look at business owners and you think, well, these folks must have resources. Mm -hmm. They're often uninsured. They often are not taking a salary or they're taking only enough to live. Mm -hmm. um, and then they also are really busy 
and like often also, you know, years into chronic stress, which means that the sort of things that they're experiencing are becoming even more complicated. Um, yeah, there's a compounding of the initial sort of issues to bleed out everywhere almost. Exactly. So yeah. like, this is the situation that people found themselves in. So he said, okay, the investors have to be involved. They have to give permission and they need to provide money. Mm -hmm. for this. And so Howie and Jake said, cool, we'll give them permission. We will pay for them to do whatever it is, Kari, that you decide for them to do to help them perform better. Yeah, yeah. yeah build and, the map, build the well, structure, and we're going to support them in engaging that map and structure of health. Right. So then I was like, oh crap, now I got to like, I got to build something. Right? <laughs> oh, come on. You know, you liked it a little bit. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. So I have a parallel story along with this. Um, so the first thing is I looked around and I was like, there's surely there's someone else doing this, right? Surely mm -hmm. I can just find someone else who's doing this. I can partner with them and then we can replicate the system. Yeah. Like looking, every... looking for an alternative system either to join with or to glean from like how they're doing it. Exactly. So I called a bunch of coaching firms. I talked to as many coaches as I get my hands on. I talked to a bunch of investors. Nobody's doing this. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of sitting in this place where I'm like, well, I guess I have to build something, right? Yeah, like, you know, yeah. like now I've, I'm really invested in the stories of these people. I'm like really now embedded in this culture in a way that I hadn't really expected to become. Mm -hmm. Also, like along the way, this is my parallel process. I was like, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. I was like, mm. I totally get everything that these people are saying. And like, I never thought of myself that way, but the sort of things that they experience and the way they see the world, like I started feeling kind of like, uh, these are my people. Yeah, there was this initial period of almost uh, alienation from the, the entrepreneur kind of CEO founder type where you're like the evil people in the world. Yeah. And then it sounds like you research them. Like anytime we like talk to someone, right? Like in a genuine way, we're like, oh, you're a human. That's exactly <laughs> and, what happened. And, and then you're like, oh, I'm one of these humans too. <laughs> yeah, so that happened. But alongside in the background, what, it, what was going on is that Howie and Jake were in the middle of fundraising but they hadn't closed any capital yet, which mm. meant that there was no funding for the project. Mm. And I'd just been in grad school for five years. And yeah, you wanted some money maybe to survive and live. I was really poor. And yeah. like, I was, um, I was like babysitting and like, you know, doing some stuff like on the side, like kind yeah, of like part-time nanny, part-time PsyD student. Yeah. I took a job at a community clinic. So I was doing some, some therapy work, but getting paid hardly enough to cover my bills. And so while I was trying to understand, like, how do I support and help founders? I was working two full jobs. Like I was spending, you know, probably 60, 70 hours a week oh, working yeah. and yeah, I was yeah. totally broke. Um, and I, so you're working like two jobs and doing this research and kind of starting to become alive with this whole other endeavor that like isn't giving you money, doesn't have like a guaranteed runway to it. And then you're like, oh, yeah. And then you're like, I'm an entrepreneur. And I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> this is what they're talking about. I'm living it. <laughs> so that happened. And um, eventually we did figure out how to get the project funded. And mm -hmm. I started paying myself very, very little, but, uh, so I'll say for the next two and a half years or so, I really lived 
the entrepreneurial journey. And the, and the project, right? Like, can you speak to the project? Because you do this research, you're interviewing kind of CEOs and founders that have had burnout. Like, what does the project, once it sort of settles a bit, that maybe that first incarnation, like, what did it look like? So what struck me is that from the research is that this is, this is actually not only, this is not a leadership problem. Right. So this is not a thing that can be solved by having an executive coach or like a mentor or something like that, which, by the way, all founders have plenty of those sorts of people around. Yeah. Like, like who who is a, a business person that's made it that can teach me how to make it also. Right. So they're well resourced there. But what I started to notice is that the things that were kind of really going on um, were really holistic human things. And so, and the reason I just did this is that I'm envisioning in my head the koshas the, of yoga philosophy. Oh, yeah, yeah, please share. So, I don't know the koshas so well, so I'm going to have to listen. Uh, I might take you on a little field trip over here to a poster in a second. Um, yeah. But the koshas, there's essentially five sheaths of, that, that exist or five um, layers that exist within humans. Like this is the holistic model of the, one of the yogic traditions. Right. And, and for the sort of yoga that I teach and practice, along with a group that I did research with in grad school called Yoga X, mm-hmm. um, we, everything is centered around the koshas mm-hmm. um, because you can't really disentangle from my perspective, all of the different aspects of the human experience. So that yeah, they're, they're, they're dependent upon each other. They're not just connected, but they, they coexist together to build the system that operates. Right. We call it a holarchy. Holarchy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. Include and transcend, right? So yeah, we're getting um, some some Wilbur integral in here. <laughs> well, we'll get there in just a second. Take oh, we're going there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the innermost one is called Anamaya Kosha, and that's the that's the what called food body. And so when I'm looking at the founder experience of burnout, like that's often what's actually happening in their physical bodies, right? So like they're experiencing headaches or some of them have chronic illnesses that um, have been exacerbated or even created by stress or gastrointestinal problems, right? There's something like physical happening. And then, in- so there's like the, it's on when they say food body, there's a literal and a bit metaphoric there, like our basic energy system as a human, like sleep, yeah, the food, stuff- rest. Yeah. And then, but then our nervous system maybe gets tied in there a little bit, which is a little more complicated. That's okay, the second kosha. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, right. So the food body is like, and, and for founders and for all of us, I don't think this is just for founders, but if we put crap in, we get crap out, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, I early on was working with a client and he would be working till two, three, four in the morning and eating ice cream all night to keep himself awake. Yeah. And, you know, so if you think about and then like, like lethargia food, crash in the morning, like, why am I so tired and feel horrible every morning? Right. Then you have to drink coffee to bring yourself back up. Then oh, you have to yeah. smoke weed or drink alcohol in order to, to come back down. And so there we is, don't, we don't bring me down. Weed brings me up. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you stick with the alcohol then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, you're talking about this like complicated feedback loose system that like we add things that then like runaway energy systems take over, right? Like, oh, right. the ice cream starts it, but then the coffee, then the this, then the that, and then right. it's fucking it's out of control. A, and it's a pylon, right? So then like mm-hmm. two or three years later, you're like, oh, I feel shitty. I feel terrible. Yeah, my and joints like, hurt yeah. and like, yeah, everything, yeah. And so what I found is that we actually have to start by talking about the body. 
because that's where, you know, people might say, well, I feel depressed. And I was like, well, what's your diet? <laughs> like, how long have you been depressed? First point of contact, this first um, dosha glare, is it a dosha? Kosha, with a kosha, K. This, this first kosha glare that you want to like sort of address, like food and sleep and these other basics. Yeah. So that's anamaya kosha. Then the next one you started talking about is nervous system stuff. This is called pranamaya kosha. Uh -huh. Those of you who go to yoga classes re recognize prana as the breath, the breath practice. Or shop at certain stores, you know. <laughs> or whatever, right? <laughs> or legging. Um, <laughs> so this is this is the energetic body or the sometimes called the emotional body. And for me, the nervous system is really tied in between the food body and pranamaya kosha or the energetic body. And all of the founders that my esoteric mind is spinning right now. And I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes. I'll let you talk. But I'm very curious about like the nervous system, subtle body, energy systems, or these all the second kosha, but please continue. <laughs> we, can, we can put in the show notes. This is a great place to go explore polyvagal theory, right? Oh yeah. So we're in the realm of our three kind of nervous system nerves exactly. that are like shutdown, activation, and connection. Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. So and guess where where do you think most founders are most of the time activation i assume but they maybe go to shut down periodically and have to pull themselves out exactly so what we end up seeing actually is fight or flight into freeze and submit mm -hmm. just bouncing back between mm -hmm. those and not really ever living in tend and befriend I, I imagine they're in activation at work and then at home they go home and they shut down isolated alone yeah. yeah just crash eat the food watch netflix feel horrible about themselves and then go back and pretend like they're the boss <laughs> Yeah. And, and as you can imagine, like if you are listening to music on like level number 10, then you put, turn it down to number three, you think that it's really quiet, you can hardly hear it. And so founders also get used to being in this activated state, this becomes normalized, and then they actually get kind of addicted to it, right? So yeah, then there's the hypomanic quality to it, where you want to exactly. stay kind of hovering at that level that's a little too high to sustain. Right. And then if you ever have a moment of quiet, either you just fall asleep or you're so bored that you start looking for other things to do. Oh, the, the mind that grasps is seeking something to maintain the activation and is not ready yet to relinquish into like a restfulness. I forget the phrase he's befriend and connect. Is that the quality? Tend and befriend. Tend and befriend. Thank you. I don't know. I don't know if that's the, like I don't know. I, I've read the book. I know it's really close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The body keeps the score is a great place to start for that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of other good resources too. Um, so that brings us to the third kosha, which is monomaya kosha. And this is the mind layer. Mm. This is where things start getting really juicy because like conceptual mind layer sort of, or identity mind layer or all that fun shit. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, any, anything I throw out there around mine is going to be included. That's a big, that's a big old kosha there. Yeah. And we won't get into to yogic theory here too much, but there are sub layers within monomaya. Oh, the, the micro koshas, the like layers. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so there's something there about identity, right? Like, what do I actually kind of attach myself to? And what we started seeing with founders, which is true for all of us, is that we recreate our family dynamics wherever we go. Thank you. I was wondering, like, our past history, if that's included in the mind layer. I guess it is. Okay, that's yes. great. <laughs> these are the stories we tell ourselves, right? So, like, I was, I was telling someone earlier that, of course, I found myself running a company because mm -hmm. I've been parentified since I was six. I've always been the parent. Like you've been boss since you were young. Right. So then someone starts telling me what to do. And I was like, well, like it didn't work the first time. So like, why would I start listening to people now? No, like I will also write like, I, sorry, I'm 
guessing here right but like there's a reason at six you became the parent so like you don't tr- like someone that tells you what to do is like i don't trust anyone that tells me what to do you guys fail me like i'm gonna take care of this exactly exactly and there's a there's a family saying in my family which says if you want it done right do it yourself oh yeah so it was like a double a double pressure sort of the family right. dynamic that asks you to be a child parent and then also a value in the family system of like own your own shit, take care of it. You got this. Like we love you when we don't need to worry about you. Right. And, you know, I was born in the late eighties. And so I grew up in the, you can do anything era. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the manic eighties. Like we can get it. We can do it all in the fucking crash of the (laughs) nineties. Right. Which we were talking about before this call. (laughs) Yeah. Which, you know, and, and actually like my childhood story, I think is, is mine, but it's also shared by a lot of people mm-hmm. in that, like I had this sort of heroic childhood of trying to like step into saving my family. Then somewhere around my teenage years, I realized that I wasn't doing a very good job. Mm. Family and, wasn't being saved by your effort. Right. Well, and like, of course it wasn't because I was a kid, but like at the time, you know, I thought, well, I, I must be able to do this. And so I became very depressed, right. And like kind of went into this shutdown and I see this happen. It's, it's a, it's basically like a really long burnout cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Like you see this in the founders, they're sort of start this company, kind of this activation energy, and then some recognizing points along the way, maybe it's not working at least as they envisioned it. And then a shutdown will occur. Yeah. And that's like part of burnout in a way, like the shutting down is okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'll talk about that in a second. So Monomaya Kosha is like partially it's our role or identity, right? So it's like, Mm -hmm. and this is the third mind layer. Exactly. So it's like, I see myself as someone who has to be successful, right? Or maybe I learned in my childhood that the way to get love is to achieve, or maybe I learned that no one's going to do anything for myself. So if I want to survive, I have to do it all by myself. Whatever your narrative is, right? That lives in that third layer. Yeah, whatever yeah. your survival narrative was to maintain your existence through your family, which we right. all have on some level. Hopefully it's more adaptable, but sometimes right. it's pretty fucked up. But we hear like founders kind of want to do extreme things. And so the narratives often that came from their childhoods or came from our childhoods often drive us to do an extreme thing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That there's a grouping that happens within the founders at that third layer, there's some shared history, even though it might be different for founders. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the third layer. So we are interested in physical well-being. We're interested in energetic well-being or emotional well-being. We're interested in managing the mind, the narratives, and the identities in a way that sets us up for health rather than for continued suffering. And then the bottom three are really the ones that most people kind of are traveling between. They can grok those the easiest in a way. Right. Right. And then the fourth one is called Vijnana Maya Kosha. And this is uh, the subtle, subtle body or okay. sometimes called intuition, right? Or you're like gut check. Um, yeah. You combine the three other rings. How do we g- gain information from that um, massive amount of information that's happening? Exactly. That's the holarchy thing. So like when the, when the bottom three are really well integrated and really well taken care of, then it unlocks like the fourth level. If you think about it like a video game, <laughs> then you have access to your subtle awareness. And 
once you can access your subtle awareness, and I mean, you hear people say this all the time, right? It's like, well, when I just trusted myself or I trusted my gut, then I did a better job, right? Or I was surprised at how well things went when I just trusted my gut. And I that's- like, And one thing you're saying in here is when they have a healthy gut. Right. Because the bottom three have to be done first. Like my, my, I trusted my gut and I thought they were out to get me and I fired them because they were going to stab me in the back. I'm like, oh, wait, that was my brother that did that to me all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. You got confused at Mana Maya Kosha or like you're, you know, eating, eating a bunch of candy instead of eating all the things you should. And literally you're cut off from your body and you don't get that information. Yeah. Yeah. Your body can't even send signals. Oh, Okay. So then, so, okay, so say we get it, we get all the way to Vijnana Maya Kosha. So, uh -huh. you know, we're like starting to get into transcendent leadership, starting to kind of like lead with subtle awareness, mm -hmm. starting to understand um, ourselves, at least as whole. Mm -hmm. Then the last Kosha is called Ananda Maya Kosha. And um, sometimes I say that this is the one um, and all the like yogi scholars listening to this are going to tear me apart on this, but I sometimes say this it's is where the, we were. It's, it's the internet. You're supposed to get torn apart. Cool. We'll know that we made it, right? When yeah, like anyone that tears you apart is doing their job to maintain the internet's reputation. <laughs> so Ananda Mayakosha, I, I sometimes say that this is where we remember that we're connected to all that is. So this is like that fourth layer. You become the holism of your contain self-entity and can make more inferred decisions from all that data but the fifth layer that whole holonic self that gets activated and is firing is then part of a wider system too exactly and so you know one way to look at this is like we're all connected we're all one right this sort of experience that we might have if we've walked like, on if i had a fancy coffee cup i might say that right now or something <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the more practical part of that is this is where we start to see enlightened business practices. Oh, so you, you went from transcendent to enlightened. These are like two modes that you're sort of including in here as the evolution of business within the VC culture. Sure. Yeah. Don't, maybe don't quote me on that. Exactly. Well, I guess I'm quoted here. Well, so, this is no hard quotes. This is a loose conversation that people happen <laughs> to be listening to. Perfect. <laughs> when you're there, if you remember that you're connected to all that is, then you can't practice business where one person loses and one person wins. Mm -hmm. Or you can't practice business where the company's crushing it, but everybody within the company is suffering. Mm -hmm. Because as a person who's sitting in that Anandamaya Kosha level, you start to see kind of the interconnected web of all that is. So you think about like, oh, I'm creating a product that's then influencing a society that's then coming back into our business and our business is its own system. So you have, you can't help when you're in that kind of mind state, but to see the ripple effects of every decision that you make. You're making me think, I didn't watch that documentary, but it was the recent one about social media in the last year. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Uh, I haven't seen it. Yeah, but the, the, it seemed like a lot of the the people involved in the creation of our social media afterwards were like, what the fuck did we do? This yeah. is horrible. And they're like trying to change the culture now after they created the culture, which yeah. seems like they weren't holding that fifth layer too well. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, right? Is like, if we get really focused on achieving, right? If we're in the third layer in Monomaya Kosha and our primary narrative is to get love, I have to achieve at all costs, then mm. the gets a really narrow definition. And like right. achievement being like this business succeeding, which is expressed through monetary value is love for me. Exactly. Oh, those poor VCs just wanting to be loved. That's why they're destroying the world. 
Well, and that's a really interesting point because what I heard from VCs when I first started chatting with them is that they would invest in founders who are willing to succeed or they were willing to crush it at all costs. Like nothing will stop them from recouping the investment. And the tagline that I put on the end is even if the cost is the founder's life. Yes. Yeah. That they will literally work themselves to death. And we know that mental health statistics for founders are much higher than the general population, including suicidality. Mm. That, that this cohort of people specifically is willing to achieve at all costs. Which is like a chicken and egg thing, right? Like people are drawn to this cohort and then this cohort creates a culture that feeds a sort of yeah. self-sacrificial kind of Promethean quality. Exactly. Right. So we have, we have this sort of like hustle porn, if you've heard that. No, um, but I'm going to remember it and appreciate it. Hustle porn. So, so like okay. there's this idea of like glamorizing overworking and total like, optimization, right? Like all, like you can do it fucking all. You can be in shape, have the good relationships and work 80 hours a week and be enlightened all you're good. You got it. Don't worry. Just do it. <laughs> So in my dissertation, I called that the double bind, which is that not only do you have, you have to achieve, but then you also have to take care of yourself at mm. the highest level possible. And they're actually kind of sitting in a place where if you do both, uh, no, they sit in a place where you can't do both. <laughs> That's the well, point. I think you're, but you're saying right on one level, you can't do both based on the organizational structure that's built. But in order for the organization to change shape that supports both these endeavors is the only way this is actually going to work. Is that part of it? Yep. And the way that that happens is by having folks in leadership who are sitting in Ananda Mayakosha. Yeah. Who can hold both of these that they're right. sort of the holism of the self, the holism of the organization and the holism of the the space the organization is embedded in. I mean, you say all that is, but like the, the vast ecology of the totality of life. Right. And, and I think a person in Ananda Mayakosha, I was thinking about something you said in consultation about this, which is like, there isn't a this or a this, right? There's no black and white thinking. Um, mm -hmm. It becomes- Unless you're at one of those rungs and then it's pretty black and white. <laughs> but it becomes much more fluid. Like, like, you know, we start, we start seeing as, as founders become more developed through this process that I just described, that things like work-life balance stop making sense. Right, like it's not work or it's life. Um, we start seeing phrases like work-life integration becoming more interesting. But then we start saying like, well, it's not even the integration of work and life. It's like life and work are actually the same thing. And there's a lot of different things in my life that are important to me. So how do I almost put it together like a puzzle, you know, or like a wheel that has all of the things that are important to me rather than thinking about my work and the time that I'm living as two totally separate things. Yeah. But then like sometimes one of these aspects of existence, one of these koshas or however we kind of conceptually frame it becomes larger than the other ones. Exactly. And it's almost like you got to shrink it down and give another thing independent time, right? Like I meditate because I need an hour where I'm like not fucking doing work, right? right. Rather than like, oh, I should be mindful all the time. It's like, well, that's not going to work if you're only thinking about work. Right. Yeah. But if you see all of it as life, so I have work life, I have meditation life, I have going on a walk life, I have mm. eating good food life, right? Mm. Like all of these things are important values that come together again in a holarchy, right? Where they're, they're actually all interconnected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of life that supports me in thriving rather than suffering. 
And, and what I imagine though, right, like is a, a CEO or a founder that's coming into your organization, like I'm either starting out and they're telling me I need to do this so I don't burn out. So, or I've burnt out and I really fucking need you. Can you help me please? Yeah. That like that whole archic circle that you're kind of describing that in the center of work life, play life, family life, all these lives, like what's actually the center there? Because I think for a lot of these VCs, it's the business. Like they're only doing these things so that the business thrives. But I think the model you're describing is these things relate around some other center. And I, I'm wondering if you could elucidate, like what is the center from which all of these uh, fractal expressions of ourselves kind of emanate from? Like, why are we, why are we being healthy for what? <laughs> is this a Does that make sense? I don't think I'm making sense, but I hope you Very get... existential question. Are you asking me like, what's the purpose of living? No, I think I am, but I, I, I think I'm, yes, I'm asking you, eh, what's the what's the healthy purpose of living like when do we actually when are when does our health work yeah. and it seems a lot of us use this mentality you're describing this sort of holarchic holistic mentality to support work totally and this is the whole like uh biohacking thing that's been yeah happening. life hacking biohacking optimization yeah yeah it's like okay so i'm gonna drink soylent and sleep four hours a night and meditate, meditate two hours because it's more efficient than sleeping. Cause I get 45 more minutes of work right. in through that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so if I do all these things, then I can work more, right. Then I can, then I can crush it harder. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's kind of the mentality. And I do think, and this is where I have to be self-reflective again. So somehow in this process, I started out with this perspective that, um, you know, we're going to move into this sort of world where everyone's living in Ananda Maya Kosha. And then what happened to me is that the part of my pie that represented work over the time that I've been building this company has increased so much that there's just a tiny little sliver left that's not work. That's, that's, so like, that's Kari kind of. Yeah, yeah, like I'm living it like alongside this whole thing happening. Well, yeah, what's that journey for you? You start building this company out. And I imagine it grows and grows the portion of your life that is Atlas. And then now Pylea, like, can, was there a point where you recognized that your pie had been consumed by the company? Which I imagine is something that happens to a lot of founders is just sort of like, oh, shit, there's like not a lot of me left. And all of me is going to the, the livelihood of this organization. Yeah. I honestly didn't realize it until COVID hit. Oh yeah, the great the great reckoning helped yeah. you out. <laughs> yeah, I'd been traveling so much for work. I was gone, you know, three to four weeks out of every month, some, mm -hmm. somewhere in the world, doing work. And when I'm traveling, I would kind of just like everything was work, right? Wherever I was, I was there for work. Like so, you go to you go to Toronto to help out a company. The whole time you're there, you're there to help like do the work. Yep, exactly. And so I, and I was just so on the go that I didn't really recognize. And I was having a lot of fun, you know, I was going to a lot of places and meeting a lot of cool people and I love my work. And so there's an energy that an organization is growing and building and kind of coming to life. Yeah, I felt I felt really energized by it. And I'll, I'll weave in now the four, the four phases of burnout. The first one is, is um, really about called enthusiasm. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's really about this like optimistic dream world of like, oh, look at this idea. We could do all these things. And there's like, a lot of excitement there. And like, I was there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You were super energized by it. Like 
by this idea that you were building of helping other people with their burnout. <laughs> yeah. And I was tired, but it was like, you know, the kind of tired, like after you get back from a run or like you do a hard mm -hmm. yoga class or something like that, it's like that really fulfilled kind of tired. Like I felt that like, like the, the work you were expending and the tiredness from that work felt worth it to you. Totally. And so then when COVID hit, the need went up. So we tripled our business in the first week after um, cities started closing down. Uh, people were reaching out saying like, we're suffering, we're afraid. Like, what if we all go into our homes? How do we keep track of people? Like there's mm. extroverts, we're suffering, <laughs> right? There's been a lot of suffering the last two years and a whole variety of expressions. Right. So folks, I mean, my phone was ringing off of its hook. Yeah. So I, you know, coming off of this sort of this enthusiasm portion of my burnout, I moved into what's called overinvestment. Mm. So thinking I that, called the, I called that the doubling down earlier, I think. Yeah, the doubling yeah. down. Exactly. And so I said, well, you know, the world is in need. Here I am. Right. I oh, have there's this. a little bit of like a savior heroine hero <laughs> complex in the um, what was the phrase you used for it? The Oh, I don't know. Which the second, part? what's the second stage called again? Overinvestment. Overinvestment. There's like a heroic yeah. quality to overinvestment. Yeah. yeah. And I, my sort of like archetype, you know, I, I like kind of bounce between like a caretaker and a hero. Mm -hmm. A heroic my, caretaker. <laughs> my like personal way of being. So like, you know, when people are in distress, it's like when I'm at my best, right? Like I've been, I've been like called forward to like take on this charge. So you're willing. Very willing. <laughs> yeah. So I started working a lot, like all day, every day, just trying to accommodate all the things that were going on. And I was really happy to do it. We thought COVID might be like a month, two months, three months, a year, right? So now I'm like starting to do this and I'm like, oh, I've been over investing now for much longer than I thought. I, I set out to run a sprint and it turned into a marathon. Yeah. Um, and alongside that happening to me, it was happening to, you know, everybody else. Like there's what I hear in this overinvestment phase is that there's a willingness to tax one's own system, to tax your system, because the organization needs it, whether it's growing at a rate to keep up with it, or maybe if it's needing support because there's a, an issue in the organization that yeah. like you're willing to give yourself because at some point there'll be an end date where the organization will be better and then you can take care of yourself almost. Right. And I think about overinvestment, like literally is like, if you were overinvesting in something mm -hmm. like you're, you're putting more in than you're getting out. Mm -hmm. And so there's a time limited quality to that. Like you can only invest so long until you run out of whatever it is to give. Right. Like, so if I give a lot of energy and it's, and I'm being depleted at some point I hit a wall, I have nothing more to give. Yeah. yeah. And so that leads to the next phase of burnout, which I talked about earlier I think in my personal journey, which is like the time when I became depressed, we call this disillusionment, uh -huh. which is like, oh, this isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. The, both organizationally and for the self, like it could be a little bit of both kind of what's not working in both categories almost. Yeah. Disillusionment is when all the pieces of breakdown start to line up. So, you know, earlier when I talked about um, the founder story where it's like, all right, so now I'm getting headaches and I'm getting stomach aches and I've kind of ruined my relationships outside of work because I have to focus on work right during the overinvestment phase. Then I'm coming to work cranky because I'm not sleeping and I'm not eating right. So then my coworkers turn against me. 
then at some point I like become aware of all of this and I realize like no one's with me. Yeah. And like this isn't working. Yeah, like the hero becomes kind of alone in a way. And maybe even fallen in some cases, right? Like this is where things kind of stop working. This also feels like a realm of shadow work in a way as you're describing it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in disillusionment is often when we start to see people come to ask for our services. Oh, okay. This is the sort of uh, the entry point into support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially for people who maybe don't have the self-awareness and like fortunately oh, man, i have self-awareness and i'm like track I, I mean that was so arrogant i have self-awareness, I have self-awareness. But, but like i think i have some self-awareness and people kind of highlight that in me sometimes like oh you have a lot of self-awareness but i'm like i feel like i'm in disillusionment every i'm always there on some level and like there's periods where it's worse like it's so yeah. hard to not fall apart periodically And when you're there, part of the nervous system experience of that is that you actually can't see yourself as clearly as you would otherwise. So there's like a protective element of the nervous system that kind of keeps us safe from looking at ourselves too closely because that would be more devastation to the disillusionment phase. Right. So it's a really tough place to be. And sometimes founders or, you know, human beings stay in that place for a really long time because they can kind of like come in and out of it. You know, like you said, I want to move to Bali every day. Right? <laughs> you're kind of like actually, you know, in disillusionment, like some version of that, you know, every day and it gets a little bit better. So you can kind of like limp through the next day. I'm not talking about you now, but. Well, we um, still are, it's okay. <laughs> so then the fourth, the fourth is full on burnout. And well, I that's so like, we're not, we haven't even talked about burnout yet. We're not yeah, now getting to burnout. <laughs> But the fourth one, and and when I um, I wrote an article about this because I think the framework is helpful, and I don't actually say anything about burnout because once you're there, it's almost like it reminds me of the time that I went bungee jumping. I only went one time because it was so terrifying. I'll never do it again. Mm-hmm. But like the the moment that you like you kind of get excited, right? You're like planning the trip. I'm gonna go bungee jumping. Then you like start like walking out on this plank, and you got these like ropes tied around your feet. You're starting to get kind of like, you know, like really committed, like I'm getting an overinvestment. Then I like look down and I'm like, oh shit, like that's a long way down to the ground. I move into disillusionment. And then burnout is when you jump. Hmm. Yeah, so and your hands are up when you kind of convey this, like your hands yeah. are up and you, it's like a giving up almost or what? There's nothing more to do. Oh. It's like, you just, you just let go. Yeah. That can be really beautiful at some point. Yeah. But this doesn't sound like one of those times. I, I actually do think it's beautiful. One of, the, one of the things that I noticed when I was interviewing founders and then now having worked with founders who have gone through burnout is that this is kind of a relief. Mm. Like, yeah. it's like, oh, I like, instead of having to choose to do things differently, I no longer have a choice. Like mm. I can't do all of the things that I've always been doing. And like, there's a piece of it that's letting go. And like, there's, there's like kind of a like transformational honesty in that. Yeah. Like this is where the whole journey has been leading on some level Yeah. to this point of like, like you said, honesty, the, like, oh shit, it's not working. Whatever the it is in this context. And sometimes, you know, whatever it is that drives us through, mm-hmm. like, 
you know, I've got this like hero complex, right? So like you can see my hero complex continuing to build and build and build and like come to disillusionment and then back down into overinvestment. And there's always like this turmoil and this fight and this tension. And then when I come to the point of burnout, what I have to say is like, I have, I actually have to sit in like this sort of radical humanness, hmm. you know, yeah. like, I don't always get to be a hero. Yeah. And then I have to rewrite my narrative. I have to rewrite something about who I am in the world because I've, I've now come up against a wall. Yeah. And that wall sounds like a, a beautiful opportunity as you're describing it. Because I imagine the, the heroic complex in the case you're describing for you and others is like, and myself too, but is like, uh, it, it's not so healthy always. I mean, we really praise the hero in our culture, but like I love James Hillman and James Hillman really critiques like our heroic culture. And like, why did the hero emerge in our life stories? Yeah. Like it's to serve a need on some level. And it sounds like the wall confronts us with like taking on our humanness and the realism of our lives or organizations. Right. And I'll, I'll admit this to you that as, as a person who runs a company trying to help people build their companies without burning out, there's a part of me that actually feels like getting to the place where burnout happens is where real growth happens. Mm -hmm. So if we just aim to never get there, sometimes we miss the point. Yeah. My, my mind kind of fractures into a few places here of like what, what one is like, uh, when I first started practicing Zen and going on meditation retreats, every retreat at the first Zen center I practice at, the, the husband or the, the wife of the meditation teacher, she was a teacher in her own right, but wasn't quite, didn't seem to be given enough credit. She would say at the beginning of every retreat that you get in a boxing match with yourself and someone's going to lose yeah and like that's what the retreat is is just putting you to that point where you fight and fight and fight and then that moment i think you're talking about of burnout is the actual like place that we're trying to enter because that's like the where transformation can actually occur yep and we then, said, go ahead. oh no please you go please just think sometimes in in coaching or therapy world you know we say that that the breakthrough is on the other side of the breakdown Mm -hmm. well, the only way out is through. There's a lot of phrases around right. this. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't mean that each of us needs to hit full scale burnout in order to learn things about ourselves. But, you know, I almost, there's another sort of thing that we talk about in the startup world um, called failed fast, fail fast, right? Which is this idea of like, just get to the failing is a part of success. So just kind of force it and like get to the successful part. And that's an externalized concept, though, for the organization, not the internal structure of the founder that's building the organization. But I kind of like internalizing that a little bit and saying, like, if you can, if you can start on purpose running experiments to find where your breaking points are, uh -huh. then you develop this sort of growth as as a as a person, right, <laughs> over time. Yeah. In a way, that's like what we do in therapy. We on purpose bring things up and come against ourselves, right? The, the sort of radical honesty or humanness um, that can come and break down and we do it on purpose. And we try to notice our habitual ways of moving away from that honesty. Yeah. Like the ways that we dance around honesty because it hurts a little bit. 
initially, right? But like what you're saying, right? Like stage three, the disillusionment is like avoiding the honesty. But then once honesty hits, there's actually great relief. Yeah, totally. This seems true in most healing, right? That like when someone's fighting, fighting, and then finally when they take it in, whatever it is they need to take in, they're like, this sucks. This thing I'm sitting in, like this fucking sucks, but it feels better than the disillusionment. Totally. Yeah. Sometimes I say it's, you know, like the metaphor of, of working with anxiety. It's like, if you open the closet door where you think the monster is behind and shine a light in there, it might be bad, but it's probably not as bad as you thought it was right. Or as big as you made it in, in your head. And so, you know, the honesty usually is the way out. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. There's one level here, like I'm really interested in, as you're talking around burnout, that it seems that, and please correct me and take this so it matches your view more, but like what you're doing more is acknowledging burnout as an organic process of development and supporting the movement through these stages to actually create more robust human systems in building organizations. Is that a okay way of holding that? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's, it's, it's like building resilience. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And then burnout is the process of building resilience. It's not the failure of resilience, which I think sometimes we think about, right? Like avoid burnout because if you're burning out, there's something wrong with you. You're not doing it right. Totally. It's just like going to the gym, right? You're doing your bicep curls and you're actually creating little tears in your muscles. The little tears are what build bigger muscles. And I think it's the same, you know, or in, in like relationship work, we call that rupture and repair. And that's actually what creates the foundation of intimacy. And trust and so you know by like breaking ourselves down coming to that point of honesty we actually develop resiliency and develop strength can, can you share some stories if you're able to of what you see emerging when people actually hit actual burnout this fourth stage of honesty like what emerges from that process that almost highlight I, i'm hoping highlights the value of going there <laughs> yeah uh, I want to say that I'm not a proponent for full-scale burnout. I, I don't think that anyone should aspire to full holistic burnout. Um, I would say only in ceremonial space. <laughs> right. I'm talking about, I'm talking about like little, little pieces of it, um, actually as a way to avoid the sort oh. of full-scale burnout. Let me, let me take in what you're saying, I think, to reframe, because I, I think what, I'm hoping what you're saying is really important if I'm grokking it, that like I'm validating total burnout as this good thing, but really because in total burnout, it's all of the, all the system kind of crashes, right? Because there's a total yeah. taxing of the system. You're saying like catching the individual components of where maybe it's relationship, maybe it's something in our diet, like catching all these and working with that, letting it go through the cycle rather than the total system crashing. Is that, okay. And then can you name what the value of catching these threads of burnout, not the total tapestry of burnout? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I sometimes cheekily say like, once once you get to total system burnout, the only thing that can happen is that you end up in the hospital. Oh, like this is the inevitability. Right. You end up, you end up in the hospital and then you move to Bali and you don't work for two years. Like that's, that's like, I'm kind of being a little cheeky about this, but this is what I see happen with founders Mm. is that they, when they reach full-scale burnout, they get sick in some way. They end up in the hospital or under the care of somebody, because once you've hit total system burnout, you actually have to let in support from others in order to Mm. heal. 
um, yes. can be beautiful in, in and of itself. Yeah, for someone that doesn't let themselves be helped, that can be a very important point in the journey and acknowledging failure and fallibility and all that. Exactly. And then there's a little trauma that's created, right? So the process of burnout is also a process of losing control um, oh. and having, having injury occur to us in lots of different levels. Yeah, so it's a total threat to the system, right? And that's horrifying. That's a trauma. So then what we see is that people don't want to go back into building a company or working because uh, totally justified, that's where the trauma lived. So they, they either they go to Bali and they consult part-time to fund their kind of minimal lifestyle or they coach people about how not to go where they went. <laughs> sure do. <laughs> In fact, several of our coaches have gone through burnout cycles and then come back to help others. Yeah. right to avoid putting themselves back in that situation so total burnout not so good but there are some underlying positives there but there's also a trauma that happens when we hit that right uh, horrific level of disorganization that can happen yeah so i think about the other uh, the alternative right which are like these mini burnout cycles that happen in all of those different aspects of our lives and that uh -huh. kind of pie, pie chart i was describing yeah. earlier i think of it sometimes like have you ever been to a water park I have been to a water park. Okay. This is true. <laughs> have you seen those big buckets at the water park that like little trickles? Oh, when they in, fill up enough and then they crash down and you they stand dump. under it and you're like. <sighs> exactly. So I think about like that is like burnout, right? Like that's the whole thing dumping over is burnout. Mm -hmm. Now, what we're attempting to do is um, hire like, like a little man with like a little tiny pail who's like standing on top of the bucket and is like, you know, bailing out the big bucket so that we never get to that tip over position. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that that process of like the little the little bucket bailing out the big bucket is like say intentionally noticing when you snap at work and then asking yourself instead of saying, "Ooh, I never want to do that again," say, "Hmm, I wonder where that came from." Mm -hmm. Right? Maybe going into Manamayakosha and asking what narrative drove me to get frustrated just there. Maybe even mm. moving all the way into the pain so that you're sitting with it face to face, right? Coming to that moment where you're sitting with your humanness and that radical honesty. Yes. And resolving that burnout cycle. Um, you know, and just in that one moment. Um, might do it also with like noticing a headache or a sleeping pattern that's not serving you. So the one thing that seems essential in working with the inevitability of burnout and maybe even taking a mindset that burnout is helpful when you catch the individual threads because you yeah. can grow and work on your system is you have to listen to your symptoms. And their yeah. symptoms can be headaches or relational conflict or any plethora of feedback that's saying there's something in disharmony here. Yeah. And so what we see is that, say, founders, CEOs, or anyone that we're working with, as they intentionally go into those cycles, start to grow. And not only do they grow in their self-awareness, they also grow in their skills and abilities, but they're also growing their resilience mm -hmm. to continue to go into those sort of burnout cycles. And so you ask, like, what's the benefit of doing that? And for me, that's it. You grow your self-awareness, you grow your skills and ability, and then you also grow your resilience. Yeah. As you talk, one of the things I'm really interested in is uh, the function of, I've never, I haven't talked this way in the podcast yet. I'm a little nervous but like the function of patriarchy in limiting our capacity to go through the burnout cycles. That like, uh, don't be weak, 
I think that is a big strong one and not just for men, right? Even though I imagine a lot of VCs and founders are men, but uh, that attitude seems to transcend biological gender now, especially if you're probably in a heroic culture, right? Of just like, don't show weakness, man up, whatever the phrases are that prevent us from turning and looking at uh, these areas where we do need to be honest and show that we're either weak in air quotes or like, not living up to our values or whatever it is it's sort of being highlighted by the symptom yeah can you go with this does this does you does this concur for you in a way and like where where your mind goes when i say that yeah uh i could go so many places i'm going to start with kind of the specific instance of like the sort of narratives right that might live in our monomaya kosha these are things that we learned by growing up in in a patriarchal society yeah yeah sort of narratives that we subscribe to and like as a female leader, right, I say I also subscribe to these sort of values of what it looks like to be strong, right? I might I don't identify as a man, but um, yeah, but these I, values transcend biological gender with their right. within a cultural sort of framework. Exactly, and of course, of course, they block us from going through those cycles because that sort of radical honesty that happens requires us actually to. Uh, show up exactly as we are rather than as others would like us to be or as we would like ourselves to be and all of that is a it's a there's a vulnerability there's a risk and there's a confronting of the culture that we exist within yeah there's a second thing going on that is related to i think what you're saying but i'll i'll translate it into the startup world because we have a culture in the startup world right i, I said earlier hustle porn uh-huh. Which of course is reflective of the patriarchy of the larger society. Um, and we have venture capitalists, and then we have limited partners, we call those LPs, who invest in venture capitalists. And then the venture capitalists invest in the CEOs or the founders of the company. And then we have the employees of the company. And along that whole hierarchy is baked in this idea of who has power, who has control, and what does power and control look like? Mm-hmm. And for most of us still, this is white, old men with money. Mm-hmm. And so there's a specific way that these people look, there's a specific way that they act, and there are certain rules to how you play the game within that framework. In order to participate at higher rungs of these organization of power, you have to look a certain way and act and kind of meet the cultural mold in some way. Yeah. So, you know, you think about like the old boys network, right? Which oh, yeah, is like, just these oh. phrases, right? You say old boys that evoke so much in me because that's like a thing that lives in our culture, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we're looking at like the intersection of, you know, DE and I work also here and like what, what is, um, diversity uh so like you know what what does equity look like say in all of this is is all wrapped up in in the work that we can do and if we have a narrative like boys don't cry or don't be weak or don't show weakness or whatever that narrative is that's blocking us from really confronting the truth within ourselves then we also inflict that or control that same thing in the people around us which then creates this culture right, or perpetuates the culture that keeps all of us stuck and keeps all of us from healing. Yeah. And forces us into full-scale burnout because at that point, we don't have a choice. We yeah. have to collapse. Yeah, total collapse is the only option when you're unwilling to look at yourself. 
that actually you could just publish just that snippet and that would summarize the entire conversation yeah okay. thank you I'll, I'll pick one of your snippets just do for the conversation though <laughs> great. great yeah do you have more to say sort of on this like intersection of patriarchy power colonial colonial processes like this whole indoctrination of the shitty ass fucking culture we live in and how that is yeah. uh infused within the vc process and like makes all of this way more difficult and painful and a struggle just uh, for you because you because you you occupy different locations than me so you probably see things i can't see at all you know so <clears throat> yeah i don't want to go too deep into this because we could probably have a whole other conversation here maybe um, another day <laughs> yeah there's there's a lot though i mean there's a lot of systemic inequity in the process of getting funding which I think is, uh, you know, mirroring or, or a symptom of the larger inequity that we see in our societies. Mm -hmm. um, but I, something that really hit me in the last couple of years is I've been kind of doing my own work around my biases and assumptions and kind of the white culture that I grew up in. It's also around uh, the idea of like perfectionism and hard work and like, what, what does success look like? Like all of those narratives are, mm -hmm. for me, they're racially linked. Um, and they also are kind of an enemy of, um, how do I want to say this? Uh, like allowing, allowing or creating spaces where everybody can show up as their authentic selves. Yes. Um, right. It, it starts to um, create a space where people have to like look and think like me uh, in order to fit into the mold that I've created in a business. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I really, when you said that for me, like, um, that when someone makes it as a VC on some level is inherently a reinforcement of patriarchy and white, uh, sort of white dominance in a way, not, not always, right. There are so many exceptions to all this, but there is a sort of energetic template of success that people try to look like. And so much of that is rooted in sort of white supremacy almost. I, have, I don't want to go that strong, but like. I, yeah, I think that's really fair. Okay, yeah. And I want to be careful. Like I don't, I, 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 I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm just saying words. <laughs> I try and engage. So <laughs> I am not an authority on whiteness, white supremacy, VC culture, or anything. I'm just an innocent bystander that says complicated words sometimes. <laughs> We we started a, a community. You said earlier, you know, well, maybe you should. Or what wouldn't it be better if VCs, you know, had you yeah, could yeah. used to do this thing? And um, so we started a community. We call it VCs Who Care. Oh and yeah. There are a lot of fantastic examples of investors who are taking on capitalism, taking on the patriarchy, taking on uh, mm -hmm. creating an equitable world of funding. Yeah, um, redefining what success and both for the individual and for the organization might look like to maybe hit that fifth kosher that you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Looking for a triple bottom line businesses, looking oh. to support just like sometimes we, we like to say that business is ecological, which uh -huh. is like, it's good for me. It's good for us. It's good for the world. Yes. Um, and so, you know, we're looking at bringing together a group of people or we have a group of people who come together and talk about the different ways that they're using their privilege or their position as an investor to help drive that narrative rather than the one that's been perpetuated in times before us. Oh, okay. So like 
like using one's power and acknowledging it and trying to make it for benefit in a way rather than reinforcing kind of an older model. Yeah, I mean, we think about this is we're getting a little bit off of the burnout topic uh, this, but I think it, it relates back, um, which is we think about like if we want to make societal change through government, right? Mm -hmm. We as a society go out on the street and we protest, we hold up signs, we sign petitions, we vote, and things change a little bit over time, right? There's little Little, yeah, the incremental change sort of notion, the, the, the Biden plan, even though it doesn't seem like it's falling out right now and there's like a lot of changes happening, but that's great. <laughs> there, there's, it's slow. It's slow. Yeah. Yeah. We hope that it moves, you know, towards progress, but like moving through the government is slow. Now, moving through business is fast. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I like to say, or I like to think that like venture capitalists and startups actually have the power to create societal change really quickly. Um, yeah, you know. yeah, no, I've, I've studied a bit of sort of uh, eco psychology, environmental psychology, and like this shift that happened, I don't know when it was to stop putting the sort of money towards changing the government and start lobbying the, the companies to change and then they lobby the government to change. So now people are like pushing the organizations because the government won't fucking change. Right. So if like the government is like, a, like an island, <laughs> and you know, corporations are like cruise ships, startups are like jet skis. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, we can move fast, like we can. And so this is one of the reasons that I get really excited about the business that, you know, I've, I've helped to build, which is, yeah, Pilea, yeah. yeah, we can get into a business that maybe has like five employees oh. and we can start to help the founder or the team think about living in Ananda Mayakosha. Mm -hmm. at that stage of growth. So now instead of going to a company that has 10,000 or 200,000 employees and trying to turn around the cruise ship, we're turning around a jet ski of five people to start thinking in a different way that allows a company culture to build where doing those mini burnout cycles is not only allowed, but also encouraged and supported. Mm -hmm. Then as the company scales, that's the culture that replicates rather than the sort of toxic one that we inherited from the people before us. Yeah. Yeah, there's something here for me around like the, I'm, I'm loving what you're saying around the getting in there early and supporting organizations and coming from like enlightened business. Is that what you call sure. it? Yeah, maybe there's a less, a little less grandiose of a phrase, but what, whatever that means, right? Yeah. business. Um, I can't, I, I never do the uh, is that Sanskrit? I never catch those words very well. So they don't integrate too well. But the fifth rung, this fifth rung business, yeah. fifth order business. Um, and the thing I'm curious about, right? Like, does the wider ecology of business allow uh, a fifth order enlightened business to survive? Like, if you build that up from the beginning, like, isn't that going against the cultural grain in a way? Like, can it make it in the ecology? And like, I think I would have thought differently about that question five or 10 years ago, but it seems like there's new models and new businesses emerging that at least appear to be operating from this zone you're describing. So I'm wondering if you could speak to like, can businesses do it? And is there a bit of a, like a sea change happening where there's more interest or possibility to make it work? I'm not smart enough to answer that question the way that I really would like to. Wait, um, wait, wait, how would you like to answer the question? I would love to be able to say like, here's, here's the, here's the sort of change that's occurring in society as in general, 
I have the, no- all the data points and everything and you could just track it. Yeah. I have no idea, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you. <laughs> I was, I was really inspired. I read, um, I read a lot of Ken Wilber and then, uh, read the reinventing organizations by Lulu, which oh, is, I don't, I don't know that one, but essentially like a book about business, a teal, teal organizations, right. Using Ken Wilber's model. Um, mm-hmm. and, and thinking through it um, from a business lens. Like, what does it look like to actually build this kind of company? And, and would Teal, which is in Ken Wilber's, is sort of this value-based level of organization be similar to that fifth level in the uh, similar-ish? Yeah, I think okay. we're, clo- we're close enough. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, when you said company. Teal, I'm like, oh, we should explain this. I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, if, you, if anyone that's listening that doesn't know Ken Wilber's model of organization and Teal, just Google it. And the Wikipedia will do a better job of explaining it than we do. But I, I know what you're, but keep going, please. <laughs> we don't have enough time for that right now. But yeah. I don't um, even think I could do it. I would, I would start <laughs> and then I would confuse myself. But go. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, if we say like most organizations probably, you know, in the last... 50 to 100 years are somewhere in the orange level. <laughs> you can Google that one too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, when I read that book, I started thinking, oh, it's actually, there are good examples of companies that are operating this way. There are, and and what's really inspiring to me, and sometimes in in when I'm working with businesses, we talk about this in kind of like an eye-rolly way, but, but um, millennials and Gen Zers are really interested in self-expressive brands, right? Mm-hmm. So brands that not only have a cool product, but also stand for something or also trying to do- The value the identity right of the brand in a way. Exactly, exactly. And so like that to me is, is sort of how change happens, right? In a capitalistic society, the supply and demand cycle is what creates change. When the consumer demands something else, then the market has to move to address that demand. Mm-hmm. So if, if Gen Zers say, we want you to stop harming the environment, we want you to treat your employees well, and we want you to make a cool product, then that's the new imperative for the company in order to, to create success. And so to me, that is sort of the constellation of, like for me, hope and how change happens. Yeah, yeah. The our, our requests and demands will f- fuel the change of the system on one on one side, and we okay. can always be manipulated, right? Like, sure. Oh, this brand that's ecologically rapid, and I don't know, it, you know, greenwashing and all that stuff that can happen. Yeah, and I mean, and and to your other point, like all the time, and I run into this with our business too, that we set out with really good intentions. And then sometimes there are market realities, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes we do get kind of pushed into a place where we come in conflict with our values and the desire to create a business that can sustain us, you know, so sometimes there are sort of conflicts that occur here. And to your point, maybe in some cases, or I, I and again, I don't know, I wish I had statistics on this, maybe the market realities do crush businesses that are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And maybe there's a tension point right now in our culture where this is sort of emerging and changing, Mm -hmm. but it's not totally supported and like, who knows where it's going. But, you know, I was talking to a buddy earlier on, on the podcast, his name's Nathan and he's a Shambhala guy, you know, it's a lot of time in Shambhala. So enlightened society is like a big aspect of Shambhala. That's like what they're aiming for. And I feel that's like something we're talking a bit here about, like enlightened business on a level. 
and then but enlightened business has to exist within enlightened society whatever these words mean right and that there's this whole sort of evolutionary organic movement hopefully towards less shitty business and less shitty culture and less shitty people (laughs) but i mean I, i think about this too when we when we Uh, as say as a therapist we're working with one person Mm -hmm. sometimes I would have clients come in and sit in my therapy office and say well where which where should I start and I I sometimes say it doesn't really matter where you start we're going to end up in the same place yeah yeah just start talking please (laughs) say something but it's the same with this like we can pull on any of those levers right we can pull on the the society level lever or the individual lever and as each of those changes they'll force change in the other areas yeah, this more dynamic process of kind of feedback response that is reshaping organization kind of or through time almost. And that's the reality of Anandamaya Kosha. Yeah. <laughs> the couple circle there is like when we're connected, when we recognize the connection that we have to all that is, uh, you know, we can start the transformation within ourselves in starting to confront the burnout cycles in small ways. We can confront it within our small circle around us. Um, we recognize that anytime we change one thing that there's a ripple effect that impacts everything so so i appreciate like everywhere we've been and there's maybe like one or two more point like places if that's okay this first one feels more important is um let's say someone's listening to this now or in the future that is in that third stage of burnout that disillusionment they haven't quite released into the full burnout that allows a regenerative process like what are things people can do to work through this process of burnout like what do you what would you like you know if you were just giving a i know it's not an individual but a generic sort of look here look at this what about that like could you throw out kind of what you've seen to be helpful generically for folks um, I will admit that I hate this kind of question the most. Yeah. I, have, uh, I, I know I was trying to phrase it in a way <laughs> to like honor that it's a shitty question, but like also I think a lot of people burn out and they need help. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll give you my, I'll give you my, like the shitty answer to the shitty question and then I'll tell you how I really feel about it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Please help me to, please help me to ask better questions. <laughs> It's not, it's not a shitty question. It's just that I have, if anyone's familiar with a strengths finder assessment, individuation is one of my strengths. Mm. It means that I really have trouble like pulling together, like making general statements about specific problems. Yeah, I'm an, I'm an individualist on the Enneagram. So I, I, I relate. Yes. Okay. So, um, all right. So the, the answer is if, if someone finds themselves in the third level of burnout, right, in disillusionment, and no matter what it is that's, sort of tips the person off to that the the first part of the process is to recognize where you are because the whole process of disillusionment is set up to keep us insulated from seeing what's happening oh okay so you have to kind of counteract that um the blinders that are in place on that level right and there are some things that you can put in place to help with that one is to have a coach or a therapist who's regularly reflecting back to you what they're seeing so that you have somebody kind of outside of yourself helping you to get to that awareness. So if your coach or therapist makes you feel better about yourself on a regular basis, they may not be the best help in this. That's right. 
if you always feel better when you leave your coaching or therapy <laughs> appointment, you should call me and I'll find you a new coach or therapist. It can help you see the blind spots that you don't want to look at that are uncomfortable to look at whenever we look at them. Right. If you're not regularly coming up against that radical honesty point, then you're probably not doing the work. Yeah. And it's good to have people that make us feel good. It's good sometimes to feel supportive, not, not negating that. <laughs> it's not a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing is to is to get awareness, right? So you could do that by having a coach or a therapist. You can do it by regularly asking for feedback from your team or people around you. If you're a, if you're a business leader, then like 360 evaluations can be helpful or, you know, asking your friends to tell you how they're perceiving you right now or how the things you've said ever received. Mm-hmm. That can be helpful, right? Some way of locating yourself in like what's really happening has to be the first stage. You have to activate a mirror somehow. Yes. Yes, that's really nicely said. Yeah. And then the second part of that process is figuring out a way to drive yourself to that place where you come, where you confront your own reality. So become aware of it, but then you, sometimes we use a process called amplification where you actually Mm -hmm. try to then make it bigger, or you might do a process of reflection, right? Where you kind of like write, was the first time that I remember this? all sorts of therapy tricks right to mm-hmm. help us get to this yeah tricks through human history to activate <laughs> the thing we don't want to look at tricks might not be the right word but it's like i think about this as like okay so the first stage is like seeing the ball of yarn and then the second part of the process is unwinding the ball of yarn right like mm. really getting it all unfurled like getting mm-hmm. all the way down to the bottom of it what's the root and you'll know when you're there I don't know what the feeling is for other people. The feeling is for me when I'm there is like, I get kind of like a stomach drop and like an, oh shit. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a little like change in the world. Like, oh, now I see things differently. And like, it's usually painful. Yeah. I like to relate that when we're in a, like we get pulled into our kind of reality tunnel. I like to use that word from, I can't remember the author, but the reality tunnel and reality tunnels or our constructed reality is comforting it's like a pacifier Mm because like the wideness of the world is terrifying and then but in order to kind of break through the disillusionment phase in this model it seems like there's a period where you have to let go of that and it's horrifying and that's like the dropping into the stomach and you don't know if you're going to land on -hmm. something new and then that dropping phase is usually so scary but usually you settle in somewhere better but you have to be like willing to let go and fall for a moment to like, oh, I moved from my anxious chest to my like relaxed stomach. And now I can take this in. Yeah. And we're speaking actually mostly in the mind kosha right now, right? In the monomaya kosha. Uh-huh. The, the process might have to look a little different if where your hangups are is energetically, right? Or if you have a nervous system dysregulation or if it's physical. A nervous system dysregulation requires not not pushing to the end of the dysregulation, but in re-regulating your nervous system, yeah. right? By taking like a hot, cold shower or like doing a handstand or engaging in a breathwork practice. I, I even think in the nervous system, it is a configuration of activation that has a feeling tone to it. Mm-hmm. And then that feeling tone we familiarize with and we don't want to let go of it. And yeah. the act of letting go of like the hypomanic energized state is like terrifying until you settle like, oh, now I feel relaxed. (laughs) Right. Well, and then people don't like that, right? We have to bump back into the mind state so the mind can coach the nervous system to learn something else. Yeah. Body state, what uh, a lot of our clients do is use an integrative 
medical doctor mm-hmm. to help them understand what's going on. As we have chronic stress or um, other sort of chronic habits of non-sleeping or of eating things that aren't serving us in our health, uh, sometimes there are changes that occur in our bodies that are beneath our ability to perceive, especially if we're not living in Vajnana Maya Kosha, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have that sort of subtle awareness. Um, so we recommend that if folks are experiencing chronic headaches or gastrointestinal disorders or um, any other sort of chronic uh, stress-linked disorders, that they go see someone who's uh, equipped to um, consult on subtle medicine. So, so there's these three zones you're naming here. The first where we've hung out a bit is this mind zone. And that's where having the reflective mirror and somebody that can help you see these issues is really important. And then there's the physical body you're naming there and like having a doctor that knows biochemistry, knows when the body is truly out of, out of whack and how to like put it back in order, hopefully. Yeah. And, and what we touched on earlier for a moment, there was the, the nervous system and kind of working with that. Can you say, and you name kind of cold showers or different things, like how if someone's nervous system is keyed in a frequency that's not working for them, like how can they work with that from your view? Yeah, I would say that the best thing to do is to connect with a somatic therapist or somebody who can, or some really great body workers Mm -hmm. or yoga teachers, folks who can help navigate Mm -hmm. through your unique flavor of nervous system dysregulation. Sometimes it's also linked to our psychology or to our mind layer, or sometimes it's rooted in something physical. And as an individual, it sometimes can be hard to, to parse all of that. So always recommending reach out to someone who's an expert there and can support so like therapist coach for the mind like <laughs> yeah. somatic experiencing um god what's that really popular body therapy um anyway somatic experiencing or some somatic therapy or a body worker or, or someone an like an worker. energy worker yoga some form wim hof whatever it is of working with the nervous system directly yep Yeah. And you can do it on your own. You know, there's, you can trigger the dive reflex by creating a cold experience on your face. Um, You know, that, that will usually regulate the nervous system or taking a hot, cold shower, singing loudly often also stimulates the vagus nerve can help regulate the nervous system. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jamie wheel has been like doing the rounds or something because there's a new book out like a the return of rapture, I think that's something like that. But he talks about like meso, meso experiences, these sort of middle dose nervous system things we can do, whether that's dancing, singing, cold yeah. showers to kind of wrinkle out our body on a regular basis of the sort of nervous system gunk that gets locked in there. Yep. A really long hug will do. Yeah. Yeah. And these all sound like so body based hugging, singing, dancing, cold showers. Yeah, like, regulating your breathing. Yeah. Those are kind of the, for me, the shortcuts into nervous system regulation. Yeah. And like for you, right, as someone that kind of helps people with all these areas, I mean, you outsource for doctors and stuff, but like, I think a lot of us don't know what it means to be in um, unregulated nervous system. Mm. And we might know when we're more regulated, like our baseline regulation, but like how, if you were able to describe like the quality of that dropping or that openness that happens in a regulated nervous system, like what's it like for you? 
I sometimes describe this as, you know, when you go to a 3D movie and if you look at it without the 3D lenses and the, mm-hmm. the picture is kind of like blurry and off center, mm-hmm. and then you put on the, the glasses and it pops out like this. Yeah, yeah. To me, like a nervous, a regulated nervous system for me is that level of like clarity and vibrancy mm. outside. Like the world looks brighter and crisper to me. And inside it feels like I have (laughs) I'll describe this in like kind of a weird way like it almost feels like I have I'm like full of something Mm -hmm. a little bit uh, like a heavy kind of like the the comfort of like having a heavy blanket Um, and then there's there's like a rootedness that that like (laughs) I actually imagine as a root when I feel that way uh, in my, so when my nervous system is calm, my breath is slow, my voice gets lower. Mm-hmm. I have kind of softer eyes. Yeah. I also have an experience of like wanting to like be close to people. Like there's almost yeah. like a kind of like a warmth that comes from me. Yeah. It seems like a reaching forward, yeah. but also showing of yourself, like reaching and showing. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's like almost for me, like both more energetic and more calm simultaneously. Yeah, it's really interesting in the kind of, I think it's the Theravadan Buddhist model, which is like insight meditation and stuff comes from that a lot. They have the jhanic stages, which are these like stages of absorption. Um, and like the eighth stage is like, there's just like, you know, there's no inside outside, everything's one. But the fourth stage right along the way is this, simultaneous energized and pulled down feeling that you're both mm-hmm. enlivened but really settled and yeah. it feels like you're naming that on a way of just like that you're anchored and rooted but there's an openness to the world around you too and you can move between those spaces yeah in um in yoga we call that sattva it's uh it's one of the gunas and i often think about there are three gunas <laughs> I'll make it really fast. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm not, I'm okay. You can <laughs> maybe fast for you. Please go. <laughs> One of the gunas is called tamas, and that's like couch potato, mm-hmm. but like very stable. Like if you think about like that would be ice, right? In the stages of water. Oh, okay. Um, and then there's rajas, which is like fire. It's mm-hmm. like highly activated, right? Like steam, maybe. Yeah, in my metaphor, it doesn't work that way, but uh, oh, please share your metaphor now. But that's but that's it in terms of water, right? Like it's highly activated, the particles mm-hmm. are really fast. And then the third is sattva, which is actually different than the balance of rajas and tamas. It's it's actually its own thing. It's it's more than a balance. Well, and, what is, wait, I want to know more about this more <laughs> than a balance. So it's not it's not just like not calm and not and not too energetic it's not constantly having to tweak the balance so you stay in order it's fully both right so it's fully grounded and fully energetic simultaneously Mm. so it's not a lesser state of either of them Um, and we're all like you were describing earlier the process of moving between these two right like ice cream because i'm working all night coffee right so i'm in the uh the thomas is that yeah thomas is like the the like heavy 
rajas is like the coffee thing yeah so like activating rajas and then taking us uh whether that's alcohol or something or a bunch of netflix to enter thomas and we're like just moving in and out of these and like when we think we're activated we got to move towards calm right. but it, the actual health you're i think you're saying is like it is activated too so you're not leaving the activation like right. you have to include the activation and the groundedness right you take it with you yeah. And what's amazing about this, we talked about polyvagal theory earlier, you know, Thomas is freeze or submit, mm-hmm. right? So that's dorsal vagal activation. We have rajas, which is fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have sakva, which is really like when you're in tendon befriend, right? When you're in uh, the ventral vagal state. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, we don't have to go on about that nerdiness no, yeah and, and then you can go between them yeah and you should they're like all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah that it's okay like to move between them because they're all included in health yeah. like sometimes we're overactivated sometimes we need to shut down not need to but like the conditions conspire to make that the response right and if we like move, reject either of these you'll never be in that integrated state you're describing yeah exactly cool any last thoughts or anything here for you i know we kind of went around so i I don't think there's probably much left but is there anything here that feels important to you i think i've said a lot of things (laughs) yeah yeah um anything you want to kind of plug about pilea or what you're doing in the world or how to connect with you if people wanted to kind of know more what you're doing um yeah, I suppose I suppose folks can can find us and our website is atlasq.com. Yeah. Uh, currently will soon to be transformed into joinpilea.com. Um, and I I love chatting with people about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so really happy to talk to people when they're in the enthusiasm stage, get into over-identification, and you get to disillusionment. And if you want to invite me out to Bali to hang out with you and burnout, I'm also really happy to do that. So. Yeah, yeah. You'll meet people wherever they're at in the cycle. <laughs> yeah, I love I love all of it. And like um I I've alluded to this throughout, but so much of this, I, I always tell people that your business is autobiographical. Uh-huh. And so so much of this is when I see the business developing and I see what it is that we're doing out in the world, it's really a mirror, right, for myself. So this is one of the ways in which I keep coming and confronting my own humanness is watching whatever it is that I try to build in this business and then having to sit again with, oh, that's still happening. That Um, sounds so potent and scary that that the thing you're creating is a reflection of yourself and the willingness to look at that and work on the business as yourself too. Yeah. I mean, artists make paintings, right? That are, are a, reflection here like my my mastery or artistry is in building this business and so it yeah it tells me it tells me keeps me honest to where I am and what I'm doing oh well thank you so much for being willing to share your honesty with us and I I love this notion of the like integration is the heart of it even when you were just talking there like I'll meet you at any of the stages because it's fine there's no problem with any of them (laughs) totally Thanks, Brandon. This was a fun conversation. Thank you, Kari. I really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kari. 
She's got a lot of knowledge, wisdom, and compassion around burnout and how it seems that we are all invariably put up against that wall of disillusionment and kind of have to surrender into the release of actual burnout so that we can see ourselves and kind of our histories and limitations that we're bringing to our life context that's causing difficulty. So I hope you're able to glean something from that about how to cultivate resilience and at least some self-compassion that burning out is fucking normal. You know, I know I've burned out countless times. I think I'm kind of always burning out on some level. Hope you enjoyed. Be well. Be happy. And-